Hello and welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. This podcast is for people who want to understand what it really takes to make a positive impact in public services. It features leaders from councils, the NHS, central government, charities and social enterprises, as well as think tanks and social investors. This is about policy and the implementation of policy and the grit and determination it takes to run successful public services. It's not about politics. Politics does not feature at all and the discussions are all the better for it. It's also about the stories and personal journeys of the leaders I speak to, the challenges they faced and the lessons they've learned. Running and reforming public services is incredibly difficult and I'm very grateful to these inspiring leaders for taking the time to share with others. So before we get into it, I just want to take a second to thank my friends and colleagues at Mutual Ventures for supporting me to do this podcast. My day job at Mutual Ventures is about supporting public services to be better, more sustainable and more connected to communities. This means working with central government departments to help them build bridges between policy development and local implementation. It means working with councils to help them plan for the future. And it also means working with NHS trusts to help them find their place in the new health and care system. So I hope you enjoy this podcast and that you get as much from it as I have. And don't forget to subscribe on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure that you never miss a future episode. And you might even want to go back and listen to some of the older ones. This episode is with Paul Morrison. Paul is the civil servant who ran the Homes for Ukraine refugee housing programme. As you would expect, it's a fascinating story of collaboration and trust between central government, local government, the third sector and communities. Before this, Paul had also led the Syrian refugee housing programme and he describes how he was able to bring to bear the lessons learned and the networks he built up during that crisis to deal with the more extreme, certainly in terms of speed and numbers, Ukrainian crisis. Paul is multi-talented to say the least, which means there are multiple dimensions to this conversation. He is now the Chief Executive of the Planning Inspectorate and part of our discussion is about helping listeners understand the context of the very often political public discourse on the number of houses we are building in the UK. Finally, Paul is also a driving force of a group of radically minded public servants who gather to discuss public service reform and particularly how to break down barriers between departments and service areas and also between public, private and the third sector. It's a fascinating group and I have been lucky enough to participate in some of the sessions, so I think you'll get a lot from this conversation. Paul, a huge welcome onto the podcast. I've been wanting to have this conversation with you for a while and as we will find out in our conversation you've been very busy so I really appreciate you taking the time for this. Um, for the audience I wonder if you could just say a little bit about who you are. So, thank you Andrew and uh, I'm really pleased to be here. So I'm Paul Morrison, I'm currently the Chief Executive of the Planning Inspectorate which uh, we'll talk a bit more about. Uh, I've been in that role since December um, and I uh, have been a, a civil servant uh, for the last 27 years, so uh, a lot of history to draw on in a, in a conversation today. Fantastic. And what other departments or what what uh, departments within central government have you experienced in your time there? 
So I have, I've spent the majority of my career in the Home Office. That's where I started. I started as a, uh, an administrative officer there. Um, I've dotted around. So I've spent time in Northern Ireland, uh, back at the turn of the century working on the peace process, which is fascinating. Uh, right, well. Foreign Office, um, uh, worked in arms length bodies like the, uh, Food Standards Agency. More recently, I've been in the Department for Leveling Up Housing Communities. Uh, so, you know, that, that's, that's how you find me here, uh, as it yeah. were. I, I feel like I have to ask just a little bit about working on the Good Friday Agreement and things like that. Um, I mean, that must have been some experience. We obviously just had the anniversary of that recently, and um, that must have been some experience. It really was. I think it, it, it might have been a point in my career where you really – I really understood the value of what I was doing. Prior yeah. to that, I'd been in, in mainly kind of either, either frontline operational jobs uh, in, in the admin uh, officer role or working on policy areas. But this was where you were directly kind of engaging on issues that really were going to make a difference to millions of people's lives. Yeah. And I, I was there for, I think, 18 months, but it feels like I was there for longer. Uh, with kind of the experience of it and then looking as you say looking back at the consequences of what was happening around that and and what's been achieved in the time since the turn of the century yeah i never ask any of my guests to comment on the current political situation but i can only imagine how frustrating it is for you and others who worked so hard on that at the minute so i won't ask you to to <laughs> to, to to comment on that um before getting into your, your current role at the Planning Inspector, I want to talk to you about your various roles supporting refugees to find places to live. So your latest experience was as the director of the Homes for Ukraine program. And I know before that you'd worked to support Syrian refugees as well. Can can you tell me about that? Yeah, sure. So uh, as I mentioned, I've spent a large part of my career in the in the Home Office. Um uh, in a variety of roles. My, my, my experience really in the work that you're describing there around finding homes for refugees really began in 2015. Just to, to take us back, you know, the, there was the crisis in the Mediterranean driven by events in the Middle East, large numbers of uh, displaced people and a, a very considerable public outpouring of concern and a feeling that we should be doing something. And, and you may remember the then Prime Minister David Cameron announced that we were going to host uh, 20,000 people who were going to come in over the period of the parliament then, which was about uh, anticipated to be about four years. Um, and I, at the time, was doing a, a different job. I was running a, a, a large um, part of the, the visa system. And I remember in the run-up to the announcement, there was these appalling images of you know, particularly uh, the young toddler who was drowned in the Mediterranean and, and washed up on the beach. And I remember having a conversation with my wife and she said, look, we've really got to do something. She said, we've got a spare room. Uh, surely we can offer to take some people in. And I kind of knew that at the time that wasn't really how it happened. Um, uh, but still, I had that sense that we need to do something. And when the announcement came through that that was what the government was going to do, I remember saying, phoning up my boss and saying, well, look, you know, I've got a bit of a background in issues around over, you know, international development and some security yeah. issues that would be an issue. So, so I said, you know, I, I volunteered to get involved. And, um, I think it was really when I stepped in, I wasn't you know, particularly expecting to, to be put in charge of the whole uh, operation, but that's where I ended up being. And it was quite a profound experience because you suddenly went into a situation where 
vast majority of the people in the country wanted to, to do something and make it work. And I went into a situation where we'd never, ever resettled that number of people on that scale uh, in in the history of uh, in recent history. Um, And the the way it was done basically was to go out there and and, uh, have local authorities be the primary hosts of people. But it relied on working with the UN uh, overseas and with a a large community of NGOs and charities and the faith sector. Um, And it was really incredible to go into those conversations and say right there's a huge problem we don't really know how to solve it how are we going to do it um so that that was my experience of it back in 2015 which i did from about 2015 uh through to 2018 uh and really you know sold me on the principle that these kind of wicked problems involving all parts of society do involve a different kind of uh, engagement so back in that at that time 2015 uh with the syrian refugees was that a, a sudden influx or or a gradual arrival of refugees because I know the situation your your more recent experience is maybe a bit different but how, how did so, it work then? So at the time it felt like a large influx uh, in the sense that you know the, the then prime minister announced it was announced in uh, September that we were going to do this and by Christmas we'd have a thousand people and that felt like a large number when you've been talking hundreds in a year prior to that. But you're right. If, if, if we fast forward the situation, then so uh, as I described in the usual way that civil servants do, I've done various different jobs in the interim. Um, yeah. And come uh, February, March uh, last year, 2022, when the unexpected events of the invade, Russian invasion of Ukraine, which I don't think you, know, you could see it building up, but I don't think anyone really predicted that would happen at that scale. And you suddenly were presented with an immediate moment where there were millions of people in Europe displaced and again the same outpouring of public sentiment that something needed to be done and needed to be done at pace um, but really you know a sense that the kind of thing which felt like a very large number when I was talking about it in 2015 of a thousand by Christmas and 20,000 over four years really wasn't going to cut it in the circumstances um, I should explain my, my involvement uh, in it, that I was I was doing something completely different in the in the department. But when this grew up again, it was one of those things where you again step into it, it working actually with the same minister who had worked with on Syria, Lord Harrington, who was appointed okay. as the uh, refugee minister. And and from a, a standing start, uh, we we designed a program that was capable of accommodating an awful lot more than than the the, the tens of thousands that we were talking about on the Syrian program. How many roughly were were you dealing with? So. As we sit here now in the end of April in 2023, uh, across the different schemes that are running for Ukraine, there are 170,000 people who have been hosted uh, in, wow. in across the UK. And, and it, it's illustrative, I think, of a very different way of delivering these kind of services. And just to briefly summarise, the, the, the way that we decided to approach it was, again, um, reflecting the fact that the public you know, really had indicated a very strong desire to be involved. Um, a decision was, was made uh, by ministers that what we were going to do was say to the public, you know, if you offer the accommodation, then people, you know, we will, you will be able to host uh, a refugee. Ironically, that thing that my wife was saying to me, well, we've got a spare room, why don't we, uh, we offer a place at the time? I thought, well, that's not how we do it. On this occasion, we did. The, um, yeah, so it, it became... Uh, exactly how it happened in the yeah, with yeah, the yeah. Home Ukraine program. It did, it did, yeah. and, it, and 
it really is quite, I mean, it's a profoundly different way of delivering public services because there is a, there is, I don't want to be kind of sweeping in the generalization, but there is a tendency, certainly, on my experience of delivering major programs, that what you do is you identify your problem and in central government you think around what you're going to do and how you're going to design the project and then you take it out and you engage people with the thing that you've decided, you know, how you're going to deliver it. On this occasion, we didn't do it like that in that the whole design of the program was done very much collaboratively with you know, organisations outside of government, uh, in civil society, with local government. And the actual design that we ended up with um, was fundamentally different because in most of those models, what you get when, you know, for example, on the Syrian programme, you get on one end, you get a big uh, organisation, which in that case was the UNHCR, the, the UN's refugee agency, who identify people and they pass it on to us. And that time I was in the Home Office and we do a load of case working on the cases and we match people to, you know, look yeah. and it was very much done through a centralised process. What we did with Homes for Ukraine was to say, actually, the government, of course, has a responsibility in thinking around, you know, you've got vulnerable people in Europe who need to be hosted in the UK. And what we want to do is make sure our security checks are in place to make sure that, you know, that we're not placing anyone at risk. But beyond that, the actual mechanism and process of matching people to hosts, guests to hosts, we threw out there and we said, civil society can do it. Individuals can do it. They can they can generate the connection themselves. So actually, the, the bureaucracy was was really pushed away. You know, there yeah. was no bureaucracy in that sense. It was kept to an absolute minimum. Some of the things, and I was I was very, you know, I must say, you know, I, I built a lot of my perspective on this and thinking from the experience in 2015. We did a bit of this, so that we created a platform for you know, communities, community sponsorship yeah. is known as sponsor refugees. But really, this this was the kind of the, the next level of it. And yeah. uh, it really almost felt like the way the way I thought about it was almost like uh, I, I'd looked a lot at the way that platform thinking works, you know, with, yeah. with digital platforms and the idea you, you create the core pla- platform, the core functionality and the basic standards. But then other than that, you're just allowing allowing people to kind of innovate and crowd innovation in. And that really was, I think, the, the key in this scenario to, to unlocking the scale and the volume that was needed to respond to the nature of the crisis that wouldn't have been achieved through a more traditional model. It's, it, it's incredible, really, because it, it, it often takes a crisis to cut through the normal bureaucracy. And, and I, I, can't, I can't help thinking that you probably found councils in particular more ready to, to throw away the tried and tested processes, having spent a couple of years of the pandemic kind of doing that and just finding things which worked throwing the normal process aside in order just to help people. Probably that experience made the whole system a little bit more amenable to trying different things and just getting the the job yeah. done. Yeah, I'm sure you're right. I'm sure you're right. And and it wasn't and not just the pandemic and thinking around how the response to Brexit and yeah. uh, you know in interesting you know in a in a more kind of complex and chaotic world in which these kind of shocks to the system happen and happen more frequently and more quicker with the kind of the, the networked uh, network world we live in. I'm, I'm sure you're right. And, and sometimes people say, well, why can't we have the innovation in sort of business as usual? How can we, how can yeah. we generate that? And 
I guess I, over time I've, I've ended up being a bit more realistic about it in that it doesn't, you always need to have the window and the moment and the opportunity to, to push and drive something. Yeah. And it's, it's very hard to start, you know, something that is functioning and working and trying to shake it up is, uh, yeah. it's, it's hard. But, it, but it, interestingly, it's a good example here where if I think about the experience in Syria, where a lot of the connections that then we used in Ukraine were built through Syria, um, actually with each moment of opportunity and moment where the innovation gets driven, it, it, it doesn't get lost. You know, there, there, yeah. were, there were all sorts of connections which we, we were, we totally relied on and principles and the concept of community sponsorship. It was there. And then, yeah, yeah maybe it went into steady state. And then the next time, you know, you build and build and build. So I am, uh, I'm quite, you know, increasingly realistic about, you know, thinking around the windows that you've got and, and using them appropriately. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, I'm interested as well in um, the leadership approach, which you were able to take there, because increasingly, you know, quite a lot of people listening to our discussion will be council leaders and central government leaders, you know. But if we focus on the council leaders, increasingly they are being expected to influence and drive change that they are not in complete control of and influence and uh, cajole along and support people who are not in their direct um, accountability line. How how did you manage to encourage and coordinate the various actors that needed to be, you know, that needed to spring into action here whenever, you know, they probably were largely not reporting to you directly? Yeah. So I think, I think I really would not underestimate the value of trust in answer yeah. to your question. And um, I had very good relationships with a number of local government leaders, uh, you know, from my experience, for example, working on Syria, which we then, you know, I, I, I was very pleased to be re-engaging uh, with those, with those peers. Yeah. Um, and, and it was the same, of, it, it was quite often the same people were. Quite often the same people. I was like, which is fantastic, isn't it? Because that doesn't always happen. No, exactly. And, and, and public service is, it's a relatively small world as well. So even, mm. even, if, even if it wasn't the people I worked with in Syria, it would be other people that I'd engaged with and had, yeah. had, had moved around. And, um, the, the approach that we took generally speaking, so as soon as it became apparent that we had this very devolved model, it was really for me all about creating the spaces that allowed us to have the engagement and the conversations. And, um, really for me, investing all of those relationships, you know, that I always assume the best of people in that, you know, mm. uh, in all sorts of ways. I will share problems with people. We will, we will contract to say, right, okay, here's the problem. I'm not going to, you know, work a worry away at it until I think it's more manageable and then I can bring it to you. I'll bring it to you in all its gory detail because yeah. that's the best way of us then coming up with a solution that we can, we can all sign up to. But I also trust. I trust people's ability as well. I think you've got to go into those relationships with, as a conversation of, of, of partnership of equals. So I, I know I'm from central government and hierarchically in a kind of a constitutional terms, there's a particular role that we play and ministers play. Of course, of course I get that. But I think it's far too often in some of these conversations that then translates itself into the way that you interact with people. It's more of a parent child engagement. Yeah. And that's just, it just doesn't work uh, yeah. really. And the only way you're going to get decent engagement is to be humble yourself generous and and genuinely trustworthy and trusting uh really yeah. with the key watchwords for me 
Yes. In my work, we spend a lot of time thinking about the relationship between central government and local government and local government with providers and you know, that type of thing. What would you say you've learned about the relationship between central and local during this this process over the past year, 18 months? Yeah, so I would say I have never had my trust let down through this period. So if other people are thinking around it, and maybe I'm speaking particularly to my my, my colleague, uh, you know, in, in, in central government, and sometimes I do understand the nervousness around it. Because you're, you're saying, you know, particularly when I was talking before about thinking around taking those really difficult problems yeah. and, and just, you know, airing it outside of your organisation with a sense of no no idea where of the control of where that's going and a fear that it's going to end up in negative publicity and reputational damage. But actually, in my experience, if you feel clear with people about the terms in which you're engaging it, you know, really, very rarely happens. Um, I'll I just give you one very brief kind of anecdote around that. Um, very early on in the in the process of the Homes of Ukraine program, as I mentioned before, the whole idea was that if people had people who were willing to host and sponsor them, they could arrive. But we did some checks. Of course we did. And in some very, very small number of cases, we would check a host and there would be a concern around them. You know, maybe a, a record, a criminal record, yeah. which would give rise to concerns. And that caused us a problem because then we had people in Europe who, through no fault of their own, were not now going to be able to come to the UK and in, in desperate situations. So we took that problem out there to a huge array of people across local government, across the charities. And one Sunday morning, I opened up my newspaper and there was a headline and it said, government doesn't know what it's doing, you know, this etc, etc, etc. And on Monday, I kind of went back into a conversation with a big cross section of people from multiple sectors, you know, both providers and local government, central government. And I just basically said in a slightly awfully white holy way that, you know, that here we are, we're trying to discuss the, you know, the operation of this. We're all in the self interest. It's very hard for me to do that if, if, if it ends in uh, yeah. kind of a running commentary in the media. But anyway, one of the, one of the people at that call was chief executive of a very large, you know, refugee agency. And he said, we're kind of just intervene there, Paul. And just to be absolutely crystal clear, if you're not prepared to engage in the way that Paul describes, then you should leave this group now. Mm. And that, you know, in a sense, I trusted them. I trusted him. We trusted each other. That's the space people wanted to be in. So that's my message. If you can get that singing and you can get all parties engaged in that way, then then you're really motoring. I I think that's a fantastic message and, you know, a, a message across government, really, that trust is repaid and you know, there is a huge amount of confidence at the local government level and really passionate people who know their communities really well and, you know, much better than central government. So I, I think what you're saying there makes a, a huge amount of sense. So thank you so much for explaining that. And I think people will find that really interesting. So I, I want to turn now to your current role, which is as chief executive of the planning inspectorate. Now, we've we spoke before and we've you know, promised each other not to get into a very detailed discussion about about housing policy. But homes and the number of homes is is a key debating point. Very, it's very political, but I suppose for people to really understand it outside of the politics, it would be really good just to get an understanding of the context within which this debate is happening. Because I'm sure it's not just as simple as you kind of pull a lever and homes get built. <laughs> no, you're right. So you just to explain the, you know, the, the, the planning system and, and the role that I play in it so people can kind of understand the perspective I'm bringing. So 
decisions on development, uh, by and large, uh, around housing are made by uh, local authorities at the district level. Um, the local planning authorities uh, have, a, have a, a range of responsibilities, and it's quite broad. So part of uh, what the system requires is everyone to have a local plan, which sets mm-hmm. out you know, what the what the development in a, in a local area is going to be. It's a, a vehicle for engagement with local populations. Um, and then against that backdrop, uh, a local authority will make decisions around development. And, and actually, the, the planning decisions a local authority make will be very, very wide ranging uh, from, you know, householder applications have an extension, you know, up through you know, major housing development and the, and the role of the local authority there is really to to identify the, the land for development and the and the principles and the policies that are going to kind of guide the guide the development now as you say uh you know planning is 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 you know and development is a hugely controversial issue and planning is really politics in in many ways and there are there are multiple different interests that go into it and the nature of it means that it's often contested and people disagree with the decisions and terminations made by uh, uh, councils. And the role of the planning spectrum, which is the bit I'm responsible for, really yeah, falls into three buckets there. You know, we we are the appellate authority. So, we, you know, if someone disagrees with it at any level, we'll, you know, we will have inspectors who will hear the evidence and uh, make a decision. We also examine local plans for their soundness and actually then the third uh, area is uh, we are the people who advise the Secretary of State on major infrastructure which isn't the housing bit but it's in bridges and, and, and railways and so on that so just gives you an idea of where I sit in this process yeah. um, now I think everyone is seized of you know, the nature of the challenge around housing. I mean, if it, even if I, even if I was just to play it through the prism of my experience on refugees, one of the key kind of constraints that we were facing on the design of that program was the availability of suitable accommodation for people and the, the pressures in the housing uh, market. Yeah. There is a strong policy imperative to to build more houses for that reason. Where it, where it comes into into uh, conflict often is that there'll be local concerns around housing, concerns around the, the quality and nature of the housing, concerns around the infrastructure that needs to support the additional housing, increasingly concerns about the environment, uh, environmental impact of housing. Uh, so there's a lot of um, there's a lot of different policy imperatives that are hitting and can very often kind of bump up against each other, and that uh, and that gives rise to some of the, uh, the, the the political noise you hear about these issues. Thanks for that, Paul. No, I think that that's really interesting context for anybody out there who wants to understand at least the context of the debate around homes and housing. I want to get on now to what I think is a really interesting topic and where we first encountered each other, really, which is around the subject of civil service and public service reform. So you're a key player in a group of what I would describe as radically minded civil servants who occasionally get together to talk about reform. So can you say a bit more about the hack inverted commas? Sure. So, so as, as listeners may know, there's a, a program of civil service modernization and reform, which has a number of themes and the theme that uh, I guess in it that most interested me was about how you deliver public services in a way that transcends sexual boundaries and allows 
that kind of collaboration to happen. Uh, so when I was in a, in a previous role, I was volunteering myself to be uh, a focal point for you know, bringing that together. And so what we were doing was, as you say, there, there was a network of people within the civil service, but also a number of people like yourself and people in local government and in, in businesses and in universities and, uh, and in charities and the, and the voluntary sector who, who were all thinking in the same way around how it, how is it that, you know, that we're going to, uh, put some flesh on the bones of this idea that cross-sectoral working is, is, is the best way of dealing with complex uh, problems. So what we did was we ran a series of events and it was taking advantage of the new online environment where we just got people together and we asked the question, you know, what is it that we need to do in order, you know, to, why, why should we collaborate? What, what do we need to do around it? You know, and so on. And they were really rich and fruitful conversations. I don't think your listeners would be surprised by many of the conclusions. They were yeah. very often into the territory of actually, if you're really going to collaborate in this way, then a lot of the things you need to do, some of the things I was talking about earlier, the softer, the connection, how how it yeah. how it happens. Relationships, um, trust, all that. Exactly right. Exactly right. Uh, a, a set of things which run the risk of ending up being slightly amorphous. And yeah. what does it mean? And and part of the reason why it's very not dealt with is because it's not as tangible as a, a yeah. clear transactional interaction. So anyway, that, that was we, we ran those events. They generated some good products. What emerged from them was an idea that you needed to give it a bit of focus otherwise it would uh, end up being more so we thought well, why don't we get a group of people together to really think about how you might just fill that down and convert some of these principles into a playbook uh, a, a collaboration playbook uh, not a rule book but a, 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 some of the mm. things that actually bring it down and and then to be honest and the, the time that I was doing this and I was doing it off the side of my desk in kind of support of the cabinet office uh, come March last year, obviously, as I've already mentioned, I got slightly uh, distracted by uh, living and breathing the, the Ukrainian response. And in December, when I when I came back from that and I kind of slightly emerged for breath, I emailed some of the people who'd been in, involved in the hacks previously and said, look, I'm really sorry that you know, uh, uh, I've been a bit absent and I'm, I'm keen to kind of reignite it because I had done zero in that period yes. and what was brilliant was uh, i got an email back from uh Whitehall in the industry group who are an organization that really bring together you know, what it's what it says within whitehall and uh, yeah. the private sector but others and they said oh interesting glad you're back engaged now we ran with that idea and here it is and wow. they had engaged with uh, the blavagnik school of government and you know, uh the trailer almost there is now a product which is emerging from that conversation which i really hope and uh i will uh publicize it as much as i can is going to be that platform for people to come together and share and it's looking it's looking really positive and in a few weeks time uh i i hope it will launch and then that network you're describing about will have a yeah. bit of a focal point so so uh, is this um is this a product is this like a like a product plus a forum, or what do you expect yeah. it to look like? That's the idea, yeah, yeah. Okay. So the core product is going to be, if you're interested in collaboration, yeah. here are the 19 plays that you might want to think about. And some of it will be in the territory of trust building and the nature of the leadership that you need to exhibit. There's, I'm sure there's lots of material on the back of it with some case studies, but then the idea is, as you say, to build a network on top of it and actually then encourage the sharing of, uh, of information. 
And when you say cross-sectoral, cross-sector, you mean quite a few dimensions there, don't you? You mean across government, there are different departments between central and local, but also with the private sector and the voluntary sector and or just yeah. that whole way of working Absolutely. together. Exactly right. Exactly right. And And I think, you know, the thing that emerged from my engagement on, and we could talk about lots of different points in my career, I've engaged on these wicked problems. And really, it needs a whole society response. And it doesn't mm-hmm. need one area of society then to think it's doing something and transacting with another in a very kind of contractual basis. That actually, not every time, by the way, not every problem needs this kind of a solution. And there has to be quite a heavy investment in the collaboration. But very often, um, the 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 answer comes when you just open yourselves up and crowd everyone in with all their different perspectives and you, you find yourself getting a, you know, getting a much richer and more effective solution. There's a lot to be said there in the mindset that everybody brings to, to that sort of discussion. And it has to be a very open being prepared to change your mind about things. There's no room for hero leaders in that. No, there really isn't. There is. And I was funny. I was I was chatting to some some really amazing people doing work in this, this field. There's a there's an organisation called uh, Kaleidoscope Healthcare who work largely in the title in the in the kind of healthcare arena, and they've done some really interesting work where they're saying that if collaboration is that you know valuable, which they think it is, then we shouldn't just treat it as something that just will emerge. You have to be really deliberate about it. Yeah. And uh, I was telling the story of the homes of Ukraine and we had a bit of a conversation and they're generating some product off the back of our conversation so that I can share the learning. But it was really interesting in the first draft that they got back it had already started drifting into the leader's hero because it was from my perspective. So it was yeah. all kind of pulled at this and pulled at that. And I had to scrub it all out and put it more in the, trying to put it more in the third person, which is sometimes a harder story to tell. The hero's yeah. leader is an easier story to tell. And we have to find better ways, I think, of, of telling the heroism of collaboration yeah, with yeah. multitudes rather than individuals. Yes, exactly, exactly. And out of all civil servants I've met, I've met some fantastic civil servants, and some of the best are ones who've had experience working in local government. And a big um, obsession of mine, I, th- I think, is just how can we make sure that the support is there for civil servants who are developing ideas? How can we support them to ensure that those work in the real world and that they're not not developed inside a policy bubble and i think you of all people given what you've achieved through the homes for ukraine and and other programs you you had to be extremely focused on not just the theory in fact probably not even the theory just what's the practical thing that will work on the ground and that's that's not often the Central government civil servants don't often have that level of direct exposure to what will really work on the ground. And I just wonder if you have any thoughts on that. I think the more that you can get people with a multidisciplinary experience, the better. So my, my career, I kind of mentioned when, you know, when I was... Well, through some of the jobs I was doing, like in the Northern Ireland peace process, I guess you'd probably describe me more as a policy professional. Yeah. Uh, uh, and then... Through the latter half of my period, I've really become an operational delivery person, but with a policy mindset. And I think you need you need all of it. And it does make it a lot easier, I think, to have the kind of conversations you're talking about when you've had that experience of having to have responsibility both for formulating the strategy and the policy, but then actually delivering it. 
Um, and actually, my, though I've never worked in local government, my experience of working very closely with senior leaders and yeah. colleagues in local government has made a big difference in my appreciation. There's a, a phrase which lingers in my head from a conversation with the chief executive who said how he could never do that. He, he'd had some experience in Whitehall and he said, I could never really see myself in there long term. He said, because what I like to do is at the end of the day, I like to walk through the consequences of my decisions. And I just thought, wow, that's it. You know, that's yeah. what you've got to do. You've got to, you've got to, you've got to be connected to the real life yeah. consequences of what you're doing. I completely agree. So, for anybody listening who wants to um, access some of the information that you've been talking about around the hack and some of those products, is there is there a place where they'll be able to to get to that, or how how would they find it? They will. They will. I think we're just doing a bit more work. It's not actually me doing the work. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's our colleagues in, in, uh, in, that I've mentioned in the Whitehall and Industry Group, uh, are doing a, a bit of a redraft. So it will be imminently available, uh, right. I hope before the summer. Um, I'll make sure that you let me know and we'll share it and we'll make sure that people know where they can find that stuff because it sounds fantastic and, you know, well done for planting the seeds that grew whilst you were off doing homes for Ukraine. So it's really, really nice when that happens. It's really nice when that happens. I think, I think that is very nice when I love it in the moment where I really appreciate, I feel like I've made a good thing achieved a good thing in my leadership when my absence is the thing to remark on yeah. the things that happen without you uh and really that's how you should judge yourself as a leader and the yeah. quality of the things that happen when you get out of the way rather than yeah i think, that, when I think that's brilliant leaders. i think that's a really i think that's the, the that's the most anti-hero leader thing i've heard so yes a, a fantastic lesson there so Paul, just one more question from me, and this is a question I ask everybody. So what bit of advice would you give to someone working in the public sector or charity or social enterprise who wants to make an impact in the way that you have managed to make an impact? And I know that you've already said some things that might be the answer to this question, but are there any other things? Let me say let me say a different thing that we haven't spoken around so much, which is I I think whatever you do, you've just got to relentlessly keep at the heart of all of your thinking and all of your priority the people that you're serving mm. and their experience of it and what what it is that they need and quite often you kind of get caught up going in the other direction and getting concerned around fitting with processes or top-down stuff but if you if you hold the people that you know at the heart of what that you're serving at the heart of what you're doing it really does change your perspective so ukraine one who were the people at the heart of that? It was the guests and hosts. You know, that was who, that was who everything needed to focus on and everything else needed to be in support of that. So that's the thing I would really encourage all of us to hold, hold firmly in that, in the centre of our vision. So just one follow up question. Are there any techniques or mindset advice that you can give on that? Because I can imagine that working in particularly high, high pressure, high profile, roles in the public sector the small p politics never mind big p and the process if everyone else is focusing on that you get draw, you get drawn into it and unintentionally sometimes how, how do you combat that so you can't ignore it at yeah. all you do have to you have to work with it and of course i'm not i'm not you know as a lifelong bureaucrat i'm not advocating complete anarchy and just absolving yourself from any responsibility in that wider corporate set of functions i think you've got to be cunning in how you use it 
You've yeah. got to use it to your advantage. You've got to not make it the be all and end all. You've got to, it's up to you how you work and what you want to expend your time on. And very often you have to make that decision yourself. So you, of course you need to do things to make sure that the appropriate governance is being applied and that, you know, you can honestly say that you are spending taxpayers money wisely. But at the end of the day, you mustn't, this is my view, you mustn't let that kind of almost become the grown up as telling you what to do and doing what the process tells you to do. Because the only way to be a decent public service, I think, is to accept that we are all the grown-ups. You know, we've got yeah. to behave in that way. We've got to yeah. make the decisions. We decide how we deliver the services and whether we want to do it in the way that I've described, in a trusting, open, transparent, engaged way with the people that we're serving at the heart of it. Yeah. Paul, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Wow, what a really interesting discussion that was. Um, there's quite a few things I want to highlight, so I'll whiz through them as quickly as I can. The first is Paul's point about how important it is to have trust between the different levels of government. And to be fair, that's not always the case. The centre often feels that it needs to put extra restrictions or create extra hoops to jump through. And for Paul's example of the Homes for Refugees programmes, that just didn't happen. There, there wasn't a necessity for it. There wasn't time for it. And as it turned out, it worked fine. So I think there's quite a lot of lessons to be learned there. You could understand it to a certain extent if central government was the only source of democratic legitimacy and accountability, but that's not the case. Obviously, councils are elected mayors of mayoral combined authorities are elected as well. So I think starting from a position of trust is the way to go. The second point I wanted to highlight was how Paul talked about it being very reassuring and actually quite fulfilling to realise that things happen when you're not there as a leader and that being the very opposite of hero leadership where you feel like you have to do everything yourself. And I think that that humble approach where it's great and it feels great when you can get out of the way as a leader and let people around you thrive and really drive things forward themselves and become the, the leaders of the future also at the same time. I'm sure a number of you will be zeroing in on the part of the conversation that was about cross-sector working and that not just being across government departments or between central government and local government, but between all of government and other actors like in the private sector and the third sector. This is easier said than done and only through forums like the one that Paul described can this sort of joint working with joint goals and common purpose be really achieved. It's difficult, it is really difficult, but at a local level and a national level the conversations need to be happening because government cannot do everything and for things like alleviating poverty. So I'm a commissioner on the Poverty Strategy Commission and we're making recommendations, we're developing them at the minute and we're not just thinking about what government can do, we're thinking about what the ask should be from businesses, from local communities as well. So that cross-sector working on all of those dimensions is so important if we're going to achieve what we want to achieve. So the final point I want to highlight was the bit at the end where Paul was talking about the fact that as a civil servant in particular, as a public servant, you have to operate within the process. But there are cunning ways 
of using that process to make sure that you can keep focused on what's best for people, what achieves the best outcomes for the people that you're trying to help. It can be very difficult not to get caught up in the small p politics, the process, but discipline is needed to make sure that everything you're doing, even when it is playing within the process, needs to be focused on what you're really trying to achieve for people. And I thought the way Paul described the way he approaches that, his mindset was really insightful. So that's everything for this episode. Thank you very much for taking the time to listen. I hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcasts.